It's my privilege again to break open the Word of God with you this morning as we study to show ourselves approved and as we rally around the truth this morning. Uh, We are in Hebrews chapter 13, and I'm very excited, as I usually am at at each beginning of of a new chapter, but especially this one, and uh, I can't wait to get into it with you. Let me... um, Begin, begin by saying that one of the old sayings that people threw around when I was growing up was this, put your money where your mouth is. Put your money where your mouth is. I'm not sure if that's really used anymore. I've, I've not heard it in a long time. And, and uh, as you know, sayings are always being replaced with, uh, with more modern ones. For anyone who might not be familiar with that, it is a clever way to call someone to action. Um, to mean business, to prove in action what they are saying in their words or by their words. The Dictionary on Idioms says that this expression first appeared in America around the 30s or 40s, and it carries the idea that it is easy to talk about doing something, but it is harder to do something about it. So people who were willing to support their stated opinion would act on it or invest in it or bet on it. Put your money where your mouth is. Now, likely context in which someone would use this phrase, I think, uh, is in a committed relationship. At least that's how I've experienced this uh, in my ministry. You don't love me, Janice shouts at her clueless husband who when he's not working 50, 60 hours a week, is home glued to the sports TV. He waits for a commercial to answer her out of the corner of his mouth. Well, of course I do. I tell you every day. Yes, he does. He tells her every day just before he walks out the door to go to work. But he's all talk and no action. And the two can go on for years this way, she feeling unloved by her husband and he fully convinced that he loves his wife. Jesus knew that meaning business about loving him would be one of the struggles of many future Christians and and it was with those, as it was with those who actually followed him in person. So he made this, he made this statement for for all intents and purposes, um, that uh, becomes a first century expression, really, of put your money where your mouth is. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Put your money where your mouth is. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. An intimate, personal, saving love relationship with Christ results in action. We love the Lord because... He is our Savior. He is our God. And we put Him first in our choices because we love Him. We obey His word because we love Him. He even refers to Himself in the book of Revelation as our first love. And for good reason. He wants us to live for Him. The congregation of the Hebrews here, the book of Hebrews, congregation that was receiving this letter were not living for the Lord even though they thought they were and no doubt even claimed that they were. So in the first three verses of chapter 13, which is our text for this morning, the writer essentially says, put your money where your mouth is. Let's see your love in action. Christians 
display of biblical love should be concrete, recognizable, and constant. It's how we show love to the body and to God, as the Apostle John would argue in his first epistle. And there is also an evangelistic element, by the way, to biblical love in action. It's really the best way that we can testify to God's loving act of redemption before the world. So here we are, first three verses of chapter 13. It sums up for us very nicely love in action. I'm going to put each verse um, or, uh, in, uh, in a command form. Verse number one, love each other continually. Love each other continually. The writer commands, let love of the brethren continue. Now, biblical love is a vast subject that we certainly haven't the space to exhaust here, but then again, this is not a series on biblical love. It nevertheless, I think, is prudent, though, to rehearse at least the basics of biblical love, not just because our verse calls for it. The entire New Testament calls us to practice it in obvious, deliberate, concrete, and unmistakable ways to those on the receiving end of it. So here's a brief sketch of biblical love. Seven truths about biblical love. Are you ready? Biblical love comes from God. It comes from God. It's not something that just anyone can generate or secure. One must be born again. God enables a person at conversion to love as he loves. Notice that the command in verse 1 implies clearly that love is something that these folks have because they're to continue in it, right? Love continually. They're called to practice something that they already possess. Now, you know that there are many qualities that Christians receive at their conversion. You know them as the fruits of the Spirit. And the list of them in Galatians 5 shows that love is one of them, along with joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Apostle John would would say later in his first epistle, Beloved, love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. That's the first. Here's the second. Biblical love is really the essence of the Christian faith. Biblical love is the essence of Christian faith. The intrinsic nature of the faith, the indispensable quality of Christianity is biblical love. Jesus told the religious leaders in no uncertain terms when he summed up the Ten Commandments this way, love God, love neighbor. And since Jesus fulfilled the law, love is then also the essence of Christianity. That's why it's called the royal law by James, James chapter 2, verse 8. Paul sees it this way too, and in Romans 13, 8, says Christians fulfill the law when they practice biblical love. Number three, biblical love tempts all that we are called to do. All that we're called to do should be tempered by biblical love. Everything that we do in the Christian faith is to be done in and motivated by love. We love in the truth. That means that we love according to the truth. It also motivates us to care for others, putting their interest above our own, for love is without hypocrisy. Paul interrupts his two-chapter discussion on the importance of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 with a clear message in chapter 13 that we heard read just moments ago 
that all spiritual gifts must be motivated by biblical love, or else they are insignificant and empty. What else? Biblical love is a unique doctrine of the Christian faith. A unique doctrine of the Christian faith. We would expect that since we've already established that it comes from God and one must be born again to practice it. In other words, I learn all about what love is from the Bible only. That's right. Only the Bible tells us about this love. We don't look to the world for a definition. We don't look to the world for how to express it. Paul told the Thessalonians, now as the love now as to the love of the brethren, you have not you have no one you have no one to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. God certainly showed us love by giving his son as a sacrifice for us, and then it was all, of course, recorded for us. John, in fact, in his first epistle says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Every place in the New Testament where God is said to love us, it is in terms of God giving or Christ dying. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But God demonstrated his own love to us. How? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love is about God giving himself, putting himself out so to speak. That would mean then, here's the next one, biblical love is therefore when we give of ourselves, when we put ourselves out for our neighbor. That's what biblical love is. But isn't love an emotion? Well, yes, but not only an emotion and not first an emotion. It's also an action and it is first an action. Remember that emotions are the byproduct of what is in our heart, what we think, and also what we do. And if you want to change how you feel about something, you have to change your thinking and your behavior. More specifically, you have to think and do what you believe by faith to be right, as God has defined right, and then eventually the corresponding emotion will follow. We don't wait to feel something before we obey the Lord. We do it knowing that as we do, we will begin to feel what we're supposed to. We want to be led by by what pleases God, of course, and, and do what he says. So when it comes to nurturing a brotherly affection for someone, even an enemy, we first have to put ourselves out for that person continually, and eventually we begin to feel the kind of affection that is appropriate to that specific individual. Biblical love is not, compl- is not a complicated practice. It's not complicated. I think a lot of people would like to think it is, or they'd like to pretend it is. We hear that it is from a lot of, uh, a lot of movie lines from the world. Oh, love is complicated. It's a complicated matter. It's not a complicated practice at all. Paul explains that Being devoted to one another in brotherly love comes about by giving preference to to one another in honor. That's how we go about loving someone. We give preference to that person above our own preferences. Here's a good principle to follow. We We should defer to the interest of others in the body 
unless by doing so we would compromise biblical principles. So we would want to defer to the interest of others unless by doing so we would compromise biblical principles. If we compromise no biblical principles, then let's defer to the interests of others. And let's care for people. For those first century Jewish Christians, practicing love would be manifest in the way that they were to carry out the commands in Hebrews to minister to one another. So here are the ones that we've already considered so far up to this point from the entire uh, 12 chapters, 3 verse 3, he says, encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that no, none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, rather than affirm uh, their fellow members in their drift, they should rally around them, is what the writer is getting at, rally around or rally them around apostolic truth and help them to obey it. That is how they would love in this case. In chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, so rather than leave the church and avoid persecution and tough times, as they were doing, the loving thing would be to remain steadfast and help others do the same and to be about ministry. That would be the loving thing to do in chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. Strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In other words, encourage those in the body by being an example of godliness in your life. Show we Christians the way forward. Take them by the hand and bring them with you is the loving thing to do. Verses 14, and 14 to 16, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up causing trouble and by it defiling many, that there be no immoral or godless person. <clears throat> so this calls for the saints in the church to be in each other's lives Practicing a sound one-anothering, counseling, discipling, nurturing, and so on. And we also are going to see in just a few short minutes three more examples of loving our neighbor in our particular passage. Finally, number seven, biblical love is our responsibility. So once again, John, speaking on love, argues, we know love by this, that God laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what we ought to do. Peter would also call us to fervently love one another from the heart. It's our responsibility to love the way God has loved us, to love others that way. As Christians, is our responsibility. It's not an option. And we are to pursue it. And we're to be faithful and continually love uh, people in the body this way, continually. That's a brief sketch of the basics of biblical love, and it's important that we have a good handle on it because while every Christian is capable of practicing it, not all do. And those who don't show that they reject this kind of love. 
Maybe they don't even realize that they reject it, but they do. Many churchgoers have been influenced by a worldly understanding of love. I remember listening to a wife tell me in front of her husband that she had fallen out of love with him and that her only recourse was to divorce him. And that made the most sense to her, especially since she had already moved out and was living with another man. And when I told her the good news, that is that biblical love is commanded and that she can learn how to love her husband again, she was outraged and walked out of the counseling room and out of her husband's life for good. When an elder that I served with years ago refused to practice church discipline on a church member who was clearly sinning because this elder had grown up with this church member's father and didn't want to offend the father, I asked, why not do the loving thing and offer help to the father and to his child who's in sin? Why not love them the way God wants you to? He left his office. He left the church. So many in the church want nothing to do with God's kind of love. To love people God's way can make us uncomfortable. It can ruin relationships. It can incur persecution from the very ones that we love. But we don't love this way to be loved ourselves, beloved. We love in order to please God. I've had the same discussion about the importance of church discipline and how it's a great way for the church to love a wayward member many times with lay people and even pastors who argue vehemently that it's outdated and it's unloving. I've argued even more and had more discussions with the same kinds of people about the importance of biblical counseling that is confronting people's problems with Scripture to show them the godly way to handle them. And their responses were even more adamantly against it. Oh, it's too in your face. It butts into people's business. It's not a loving approach. Words like confrontation, correction, admonition, they're just not part of the vocabulary of the modern Christian, even though they're biblical terms. That's probably because modern Christians don't read the Bible. To many in the church today, real love is letting sin go unaddressed. It's letting time heal all wounds. It's not calling people to account regarding sinful attitudes and actions. Doing away with church discipline. Letting people get away with heretical thinking. Putting the peace and unity of the body above the word. That's love today in a lot of churches. The fact that we're in Hebrews the fact that we're in Hebrews where there is, a, there is a drifting of a body and the possibility of those who might fall away from the faith that haven't embraced it yet, or have but in an, uns- an insincere manner, compels us to keep our neighbor honest about his and her faith. That is the loving thing to do. We have to pursue those in the church with unbiblical thinking and, and harmful behavior with a view to lovingly correct them, like we would our kids. That's a perfect expression of how we love our neighbor in the church. So we need to be loving the brethren continually. Number two, 
We are commanded to be hospitable to strangers. That's verse 2. Be hospitable to strangers. Now, this is, another, this is love in another direction. Those in our body are not the only ones on the receiving end of our love, of course. They're, they are the priority, by the way, just as any immediate family member is your priority. We meet the needs of our membership first before we consider how we might help those outside the church who are in the household of faith. That is a privilege of membership of any local church. If we're not getting things straight here, we have no business getting things uh, straight in people's lives outside of our membership. Now, this whole discussion fits rather nicely under the heading of hospitality. Showing love to strangers, being hospitable. This is not the only place that we find the command to be hospitable. In Romans chapter 12, verse 13, the Apostle Paul talks about it. He speaks of contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Overseers must be hospitable. Those are, those are pastors, shepherds. Widows have to have the reputation of being hospitable. Hospitality is a physical, tangible, measurable expression of sincere biblical love. In fact, the Greek word behind um, hospitality, philozenos, is made up of two Greek words, phileo, which is love, brotherly love, and xenos, which is stranger, literally love of strangers. So hospitality is an expression of brotherly love or kindness, especially to strangers. Hospitality was an important part, even in secular cultures, of secular cultures, I should say, in the ancient world, in Greece, for example, around the time of Homer, any violation of hospitality was considered a heinous crime. That's right. They believed that the gods were at odds with anyone who wasn't hospitable. You see, showing hospitality was, and not, and, and it was a small part of the moral order that the gods in Greece set in motion. And it wasn't important just to the Greeks. According to Josephus, the Jews placed a premium on hospitality along with other precepts such as one God, one temple, sanctity of marriage and family, and education of children. It was right up there in the list. The Christian practice likely grew out of the Jewish practice of caring for their own people who were away from home. It's a fact that many synagogues had guest rooms attached to them for those Jews who were passing through. Now, it was primarily the practice of putting travelers up for the night. This is what, what was practiced in the first century. And this is primarily what we mean by hospitality. Hospitality can take many forms, but primarily this is how it was understood in the first century. Historians who focused on the first century explain that the traveler would usually have little success securing good accommodations for the night. And that's because the reputation of the inns was notorious. They had poor living conditions, and the squalor would, be, would breed a rough crowd and an immoral atmosphere. Large percentage of them were nothing but brothels. The sleeping quarters were filthy and infested with insects and rodents. Thieves would lurk in the shadows waiting to rob someone, and the empire also sent spies there in order to learn what they could from uh, 
from the people. And often innkeepers would serve you diluted wine after you were sufficiently drunk so they could save money. Much of this can be deduced by the ancient graffiti that was found on the side of tavern walls excavated in Pompeii. Some of the pictures were of people kissing and gambling and fighting. It kind of sums up the character of the inns. Those are the ins and outs of the inns. Inns were not the best place to stay. You can be assured of that. In fact, you were better off in a stable with animals. Hmm. In light of this, you can imagine just how troubling staying at an inn would be for Christian travelers and how important Christian hospitality was to them. And showing hospitality proved to be not only a great opportunity to support and identify with full-time Christian workers, but to evangelize unbelievers who might be looking for shelter. And in, in doing this, we show unbelievers how God is hospitable to sinners in the ultimate sense of giving them an eternal home. We're not surprised that hospitality is present in the New Testament as a virtue, as well as in other Christian literature and in the early centuries. Near the latter part of the first century, more and more missionaries and itinerant preachers were on the move and needed to secure a safe place to rest. Church members would become like an extended family to them, providing them with lodging and assisting them in, in any way for, uh, for their journey. I've personally experienced this when I've gone to speak uh, in churches in, in my travels, and I would be put up by a, by a family of the church. We'd have a great time. They were very hospitable. Uh, it's never proved to be a, uh, a, uh, an uncomfortable situation, quite the opposite. Christian host family would really put themselves out for their guests in the first century. They would wash the feet of the stranger before he entered the home. This is first century stuff. They'd give him oils and perfume to refresh himself. They'd feed him and provide a clean place for him to sleep for the night. They would also feed and refresh his horse and mule and then send him on his way with supplies, enough to get him to his next destination. It was a labor-intensive and expensive practice and a great expression of biblical love. Now, hospitality, as I say, may look a bit different in our day. It might not be washing anybody's feet or feeding anybody's mule. Whatever it looks like, we are expected to be proactive about being hospitable. You need to start asking yourselves that question. Am I proactive? about being hospitable to the, uh, to the, to the family of God and, and to unbelievers in my life. I mentioned Romans 12, 13 just a minute ago. I want to show you just how aggressively we need to be about this. Paul commands us to pursue hospitality. Your version might say practice hospitality. The Greek word is really pursue and it means to move hastily towards something, to move rapidly or aggressively toward an object. So in Philippians 3.14, Paul pursues heaven. I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's how he pursues heaven. In Philippians 3.6, Paul, or Saul, this is before his conversion, pursued Christians aggressively to kill them. Right? Luke 17, 23. Gullible people pursue false teachers 
in the sense of following after them like dumb sheep. The emphasis in each of these contexts is hasty, aggressively, looking tenaciously, hunting. That's the idea of pursue. So when we plug it into the to the context of Romans 12, 13, the command is to pursue, or, or, or Hebrews 12, rather, the command is to pursue strangers for the purpose of showing them hospitality. We don't simply wait for the opportunity to present itself to us. We're looking for it. That's what Christians do when they're hospitable. We, we are deliberate about it. We go out of our way to be hospitable, and we should desire it. Peter tells churches in Asia to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So you want to put it on your list and put it really kind of at the top. Don't be grumbling about it. Don't go through the motions, gritting your teeth, heavy sigh, all that kind of stuff. This is something that we should delight. It should be a joy. We should consider a joy to put ourselves out for another in this way, for all the things that we've said. Now, Hebrews 13.2 commands us to be hospitable to all. And I want to point out, in order of priority, it doesn't come out in this text, but it does in the entire New Testament, if you were to study hospitality in sort of a systematic way or develop a theology of hospitality, you would see that there is a priority. If situations put us in a position where we had to choose who we, would, who we would be hospitable to first, it must be to those believers who are members of our own spiritual family. Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, See that no one repays evil anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now the one another in this verse refers to the members of that local church. And everyone would include those outside the local church. Hebrews 13 specifically talks about strangers. So in this case, it would be both believers and unbelievers outside the church who are our guests. And we show hospitality to them in order, in that order. And we are in a position, if we're in a position to have to choose one above the other. So we choose to show hospitality, of course, to those in the household of faith. If, uh, if there is no context where we're to have to choose, or, and it, you know, we have an opportunity to show hospitality to unbelievers, then we do so. So show hospitality to all, giving priority to those who are in our own spiritual family, then to other Christians outside the local assembly, and then to all believers, including our enemies. Jesus does tell us to love our enemies. Don't forget to pray for those who persecute us. The order of priority, I think, is helpful only when you are forced to make a choice. Just keep that in mind. How important is this, then? Very. It's very important. The writer shows just how vital it is to the practice of our faith by the next phrase in verse 2. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Mm, that sounds mysterious. You obviously had those Old Testament passages in mind where godly men entertained angels unaware, right? We think of Genesis 18, which 
which is probably the passage that the writer had in mind as well. Abraham showed hospitality to the Lord and to two of his angels when all three came to him in human form. He didn't know. Not at first. In Genesis 19, Lot did the same thing. There are other instances in the Old Testament. We don't have to recount them. But the point of the reference to angels is to motivate us to be hospitable, not because we too could entertain angels. The text doesn't say that, and it doesn't teach that. Rather, we are to do this because we should never underestimate the profound effect our hospitality can have on those we help to the glory of God. You can have a profound effect in, the, in a person's life when you show that person hospitality. An effect so profound that you might never know or you won't, won't know until later. But God knows and the person knows. It also means that when we show hospitality to others, we're in a real sense serving the Lord. Especially when our guest is a genuine believer. According to Jesus, as you did not do it to the least of those, you did not do it to me, remember? So our hospitality can have a profound effect that God will honor and use for his glory and for the benefit of his church. Local church shepherds certainly must be hospitable according to 1 Timothy 2, Titus 1.8. Their home should be open ready to minister to people there and meet their needs. Spiritual, spiritually mature women in the faith are to have the reputation of showing hospitality in their home, according to 1 Timothy 5.1. The body of believers should jump at the opportunity to be hospitable to ministers and missionaries. How do you show hospitality to each other, to other Christians, and to unsaved people in your life? How do you do that? Since hospitality is a command, and it figures prominently in the life of the early church, and it is a virtue, it is, a wor it is worth putting thought into how you can be better at this. Be better at hospitality. The one exception to hospitality, of course, would be the apostate, interestingly enough. This would be a, a further discrimination of who our enemy is. We're to love our enemy, we're to be hospitable to our enemy, but there are times when we come across an individual, we find such a one in 3 John, where John addresses this very specifically, and he commands the church not to welcome into their house anyone who is a false teacher. False teacher. And the idea is that we don't want to help them advance their cause of heresy. No. Right. Number three in the final command here. It's actually in verses three and four. It's sympathize with the persecuted. Sympathize with the persecuted. Now the writer calls us to sympathize, to, to sympathize with Christians that are in prison and Christians who are not in prison but have been abused or mistreated in some way. I'm combining them under this heading for two reasons. One is because we're talking about Christians who are persecuted for their faith, regardless of how they are persecuted. And second reason is we are to sympathize with them in the exact same way. Now, 
More on that in just a, a few moments. The command that covers both is sympathize with them. That's undeniable. But as with biblical love, many Christians misunderstand the idea of biblical sympathy. What does it mean to sympathize with someone? Well, it's not, as many would think, to merely feel sorry for somebody. This is how some in James' congregation were thinking. He says in chapter 2, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? It's kind of silly, isn't it? Yep, we heard your house burned down. We'll be praying for you. Now, contrast that with the actions of the Good Samaritan who came upon a man lying in the street and whose body was badly beaten and bloody. When he saw him lying there, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine on them. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Look after this man, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. True sympathy, beloved, is when you see someone in distress and jump into his distress with him, when you share it as if it were your own, and then together you find the biblical way out of the distress, out of the problem. The Good Samaritan is a great example of this, isn't he? An even greater one is our Lord. Jesus epitomized truth sympathy. Listen to Philippians 2, 6 through 8. Christ, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the epitome of sympathy. God sees our plight, knows that we are unable to get ourselves out of it, jumps into our plight and makes it his own by actually becoming like us, he takes upon himself our sin, pays, our, pays the penalty for it, which is eternal death and suffering, conquers death by rising from the grave, and is, and is exalted in a position at the right hand of God. And then applies all of that work or imputes it to us so that God takes us out of condemnation and places us in heaven with him. This is what the writer of Hebrews was talking about way back in chapter 2. In verse 18, he said, Because Jesus himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Because Jesus became like us, and he was tempted and always like us, he can relate to us. He can relate to every one of us better than anyone else can. Jesus suffered in his humanity just like all people. He felt the strong pull of temptation in each struggle that he had in life. He knows what it feels like. You know, temptation is not sin. 
And you can be tempted without sinning, of course. Jesus was. And if you are successful in overcoming temptation, guess what? You have experienced that temptation at its strongest point. Think about that. If you yield to a temptation, you don't experience it at its strongest point because you gave in to it. But if you overcome it, you have experienced it to its fullest. Jesus always experienced the full strength and weight of every temptation at its optimum strength to the max because he never yielded to any of them. And that was to, benefit, to his benefit in that it qualified him to relate to what we go through. That he might sympathize with us. His overcoming was to our benefit then because he, he can give us aid in our tempting moments. Isn't this why we sing, Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and I still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. Let me say that there is a common denominator, of course, in all trials and temptations and struggles that allows us to understand the resulting pain and turmoil that others might be enduring from a specific trial that we ourselves have not experienced. In, the case, in this case, our understanding is limited right? It's limited. We, we can say to that person, I understand your pain, even though we cannot say, I know what you're going through, right? We cannot say, brother, I can relate if, if we've not experienced what he's going through. But Jesus can. Jesus always can. Jesus can better and more intimately relate than you or the person realizes. If we are going to sympathize with another Christian in need, beloved, especially in situations that are not our experience, we need to get as close to their experience as possible. We need to enter into their plight, into their problems, whatever they are, and make them our own so that together we can go forward, we can minister to them with appropriate and healing passages from Scripture. We can minister to them with the words that come from the only one who can relate to them, Jesus, their great high priest. And this is why the Apostle Paul prefaces Jesus' sympathetic act with this practical application in Philippians chapter 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have this same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to see this concept of sympathizing working out here in these two instances of the persecuted Christians in our text. The writer tells them, with regard to those in prison, he tells them this, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. Greek word translated remember means more in this context than just calling to mind their brothers in prison. It's qualified by the next phrase, as though in prison with them. Here's how you're to remember those in prison. As though you were there with them. That's how. 
What does that mean? Well, it adds a physical dimension to the remembering. And this congregation would know what the writer is talking about because back in chapter 10, verse 34, we're told that they had showed sympathy to the prisoners once before. How did they do that? How did they remember them as if they themselves were in prison? This way, by joining them in their distress and meeting their needs. Let me explain that. In the first century, a, prisoner, a prisoner's family or close friends would tend to his needs or else he would die in prison. There was no one to clothe him or feed him or anything. They would bring him food and other necessities, wash his clothes, tend to his physical ailments and his wounds, help him out in any way they could. Christians sympathized with the Apostle Paul during his imprisonment in this very way. Read in Acts 24 that the centurion who kept Paul in his custody did not prevent any of his friends from ministering to him, verse 23. That was the usual custom. In Acts 27, Luke tells us that Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. Further, in Acts 28, Luke records that Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, a sort of house arrest, as w and was welcoming all who would come to him. Paul himself tells Timothy how Onesiphorus often refreshed him and was not ashamed of his chains. And in 2 Timothy 4, Paul lists the names of those who in Rome also cared for him during his incarceration, among them uh, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia. We find the same method of sympathy with the next group, the ill-treated Christians in verse 4. The command to remember them too is qualified here by the phrase, because you yourself are also in the body. We're there to remember because of this fact. So what does this mean? He, he doesn't refer here to the body of Christ. I need to explain this to you. It's true that we do share a bond in the Holy Spirit with others who are believers, and we should take offense when, we have, when they have been offended. We see the same idea in Acts 9 when Jesus associates with his persecuted Christians and he asks Saul, why do you persecute me? It's the same thing as when someone hurts in our own and one of our own family members hurts. We, we take offense at that and we want to do something for them. And when other Christians are mistreated, we Christians take it personally and we want to snap into action. That's all true, and, the, and, and there are other places in the New Testament that will confirm this thinking, but this is not really what the writer here is talking about in Hebrews. The reference to the body in this verse is a reference to a physical body. And the writer is saying, in essence, look, attend to their physical needs, the needs of these persecuted Christians who are suffering physically, because you know what pain feels like and what suffering feels like. They could relate. Back again, chapter 10, verse 34, we learn that they too were mistreated for their faith. As a result, they had become sharers with those who were now mistreated. 
that they could sympathize with them by coming to their aid, ministering to them in every way, appro- every way appropriate in each person's, to each person's context, mending their wounds, ad- addressing their wounds, encouraging them that may be downtrodden in their spirit, uplifting them in Christ and so on. We need to sympathize with our Christian brothers and sisters <clears throat> who are mistreated for their faith. And we don't have to have experienced what they're going through to do this. That's very important to understand. If we have, all the better. All the better. But you don't need to have experienced the exact same problem or trial that a Christian is enduring in order to help that Christian. You don't. Uh, Keep in mind two important facts here. One is this. Um, We can get to know what they're experiencing by putting ourselves in the midst of their suffering so that we get to know what they suffer and how they suffer and what they're thinking and what's in their heart in order to gain enough insight from them to minister to them effectively with the word. That's one thing you should know. So so because we're not experienced in their particular problem does not disqualify us from helping them. We need to get to know what their problem is. We get to need, need to get to know them. We ask questions. What's, what's, their, what's their thinking? What are they feeling? How are they behaving? And so on. So that we can then bring the word of God to bear on their particular situation. The other fact is more important, and that is this. We can remind them as we approach them, that Jesus knows exactly what they are going through because he endured the same kind of suffering. He can relate to what they're going through. And what's better? He has not only shown them how to handle their suffering, he has left his word on the matter for them to apply in their situation. And you're going to help them know what the word is. That word is the Bible, of course, and it's what we use to minister to everyone. It's how we sympathize. How are you sympathizing with other believers? Do you hurt with them from afar? Over the phone? Maybe Zoom? Or do you get into their problems with them, with a view to helping them find the biblical way out? Getting to know them, loving them, meeting their needs, that they may open up their minds to you so you can see how they're thinking and help them to think biblically. This is an intense demonstration of love. It calls for you to put yourself out for that person that you sympathize with and to pursue that person with the goal in mind to seeing that person on his or her feet again running well the race of faith. You say, I'm not well-versed in the Bible or in counseling somebody. I'm over my head. Well, then you can direct the person to those in the church who are, like pastors and godly men and women who are biblical counselors, and you can sit in with them, and you can learn how to be better at this. And sticking with someone while they receive counsel is not difficult. Just time-consuming. 
Be like the Good Samaritan. He, he saw to it that the person received medical care that he couldn't give, but was willing to pay for it and then circle back and check on his patient. Loving fellow Christians continually, to the point where we are characterized by it, being hospitable to strangers, to the point where we're characterized by it, and sympathizing with persecuted Christians. All of this is costly, it's demanding, it's time-consuming, even mentally draining and physically taxing. But it is our responsibility, and it needs to be our joy. It's imitating Christ. It's having the same mind as he. And it's a worthy and holy endeavor. It's love in action. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for this time together. We could break open the word at this point and we could hear these wonderful truths put in command form that we might know that they are indeed our responsibility. We know that we can accomplish them in Christ, that we have been given all that we need for life and godliness in the knowledge of the Son. We pray, Lord, that we would become better at exercising those gifts you have given us and that we would be on the lookout for those who fit in these categories and that we would pursue them in love with a goal of ministering to them for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.